At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Today, we invite you to tune into our current series, Built for More, Church Beyond the Weekend, where we will see what the Psalms teaches us about how life is enriched when we live and serve in community with our church family. Father, this morning, would you give us eyes to see? Would you give us ears to hear all that your Spirit is impressing upon our hearts? that we might leave this place changed and renewed and transformed by the power of your Holy Spirit. He is at work in us. Father, thank you for these brothers and sisters as they've led us to your throne, reminded us of the goodness of your grace and your good news. And Father, I pray that even now as we open up your word, Father, that we would honor you in all that we say and all that we do. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. So good to be with you all this morning. My name is Steve Zerilli, and I'm one of the pastors at Woodside. I've been a part of Woodside for 18 years. So started there barely out of college, just a couple days after graduating, and uh, have worked basically at the Troy campus. Then I was a campus pastor at one of our locations for five years. And at this point, I oversee our campuses and our preaching so grateful to be here in our Detroit campus. It's been through so many uh, journeys, twists, and turns along the way. I remember when the campus first started with Pastor Cliff, and I remember when we moved into here not that many months ago, and who would have thought uh, the situation we'd be in now? Some of you guys watching online and the rest of you here in the room. Uh, Pastor Tim has meant a great deal to me and my family over the years. So I've known uh, Tim since he started at Woodside, really even before. And I've known Skater Tim, I've known Rocker Tim, I've known Hipster Tim, I've known V-neck Tim, I've known Beardless Tim, I've known the little goatee like right here Tim, I've known the bearded Tim, and uh, I just love him to death. Uh, This weekend, uh, or I'm sorry, this past week, he was spending some time with his brother-in-law, Cliff, uh, on his sabbatical. They were over in the west side of the state playing some golf together, and I was just praying for them that just in the beauty of that he was surrounded by, that God would just come close to his heart, close to his soul, refresh his spirit. I know he is excited to uh, get to see all of you once again as well. Uh, Tim has that incredible ability. Few people have it. He's one of the strongest pastors we have on our team with it, where he just loves people. He loves to connect with people's hearts. And when I was here maybe six or so months ago with my family, we have a 14-year-old, a 12-year-old, and a 7-year-old. And when we were here last time, uh, my 7-year-old had just recently given her life to Christ and had chosen to be baptized. And Tim, I didn't even know he knew. Uh, But after the service, like he always does, he takes time to spend with people and to hear stories and to hear about what's going on in their lives. And so he he got down to her level and kind of went down like this. And her name's Eliza. And he's like, Eliza, I heard about your decision last week. And she just lit right up. He just has that wonderful ability to connect with people's hearts. And uh, so he means a great deal to us. Please keep praying for him. I'm just so thankful to fill in for this great man this morning. If you have a Bible, please make your way to Psalm 133. That's where we're going to spend our time today, Psalm 133. And let's start all the way back at the beginning of the story. The beginning of the story. Two perfect people, perfectly created, perfectly beautiful, perfectly balanced 
They had a perfect life. They had the only in history perfect marriage, perfect love. There wasn't even a hint of pride or jealousy or selfishness or resentment or regret in their relationship. None of it existed. They had never given each other the silent treatment. They had never been passive aggressive. They had never become defensive themselves. And they both, both experienced perfect communion with God, perfect relationship with their creator. Now, how do we describe the garden? When you think about paradise, what is the picture that comes to mind, the reality that comes to mind? We say they lived in perfect harmony. Nothing was out of tune. And then one act of pride, one act of rebellion, one act of disharmony, and all of a sudden this great division separated them from God, from their creator. A great chasm was created because of that sin. There was immediate disunity. Their broken relationship with God extended immediately into every relationship, into every part of the world. Now think about the kids of Adam and Eve. These are the first children ever born on the planet. They had incredible reason for community and unity. That's what we're going to be talking about today. There weren't too many lines on that family tree. They didn't have too many other people to play with, to take care of. They had the same blood. They were meant to protect one another, to look out for one another, to provide for one another. But the first sons were born in a world now, because of that event that happened in Genesis 3, now ruled by division instead of community and unity. And I would have thought, just if you kind of think of it logically or maybe just the way of human nature, I would have thought that it would have taken some time for the sin nature, for depravity, that's what we call the sin nature, for the depravity of humanity to actually reach its way into the human relationships that existed. We would maybe think it might take a few hundred years. It it seemed in the Bible like it took quite a while for people's lifespans to kind of start shortening up because we were created for eternity. And, And yet we would think maybe it would take a while as well for all of that depravity to make its way into the human condition. But how long did it take for sin to show its worst sides? Think about this. The very first son ever born on this planet was a murderer. Cain killed Abel. We're only in chapter four of human history. It took exactly two births to see the devastating consequences of disunity and division. Not much has really changed. One pastor wrote it this way, we have much in common, we share the same bonds of birth, blood, brain, behavior, bias, beliefs, burdens, blots, blemishes, blame, bondage, and battles. But in spite of all the things that bring us together, rarely are we ever unified. We live in a time of unbelievable disunity. Would you agree with us here this this morning, church? Would you sense that? We all sense it, it's so obvious societal, political, racial, philosophical, disunity, division everywhere. We experience it in all kinds of different ways and to different degrees. And we all have our stories. 
And we all have our experiences and we all have those things where we can say, yeah, I could point to this. I can point to that pain point. I can point to this issue, to that relationship where this has creeped into our lives. But deep down, don't you long for unity? Don't you long for harmony? Don't you long for peace in our world and our community? I think deep down we all hate division. We want to experience genuine unity, but the problem is that we're the problem. That's really the truth of it. The problem is as long as we have breath in our lungs and depravity in this world that we breed disunity. It's just all over us because it's oftentimes who we are. When sin entered the world, the garden started getting filled up with garbage. All of a sudden, the flowers gave way to sin. Is unity even possible anymore? There's so much garbage everywhere. You go down the highway and maybe that's all your eyes see because that's really what our eyes are trained to see, right? They're trained to see division. They're trained to see disunity. That's what we're constantly told about. That's what's reinforced as we interact with the world. And so we go down the road and all we see is garbage and garbage and garbage and garbage. And sometimes we get so used to seeing just garbage that we don't see the flowers. We don't see what else is there. Well, thank God there's more chapters to his word than just the first three or four, right? We're grateful that the story goes on. Thank God we have two testaments. Thank God that since Genesis 3, God's been on a rescue mission to restore beauty back into this broken place. And what we know from the word of God is that unity is not only possible, unity is already present. And maybe we don't realize that so often, or we don't remind ourselves of this truth so often. Unity is already here. It's already been given. Unity already came, wrapped in flesh, full of love, and with a name. Jesus had it. He died to give it. And through faith, his followers are given his spirit that guarantees it. Now, so the point is that in the middle of all the chaos... Surrounded by all the garbage, immersed in all the noise, the people of God in Christ, regardless of what is going, around, around, uh, going on around us, we can still celebrate God's gift of spiritual unity. We can celebrate something because it's already here. We've already received it. It's already been given. It's already been restored. We're already in this reality. We just simply need to embrace it and follow the Spirit into it. So this is already present in our lives. We can celebrate. Even while there's so much sorrow, we can celebrate. And when people who are filled with sorrow see a people who are celebrating, what do you think they're going to do? It's going to draw their attention to Christ, which is our whole purpose of being here in the first place. Now, we're beginning a new series today called Built for More. In the last series, we looked at adding from the book of Psalms a theological base, a foundation, a belief underneath why it's so important from the Word of God to gather together in spiritual community, why worship matters, why gathering for worship matters. And this series, we want to look at why doing life together, we call it life groups, why does that matter? What does the Word of God have to say about community and unity and life-on-life -life discipleship? That's what we're going to be exploring over the next few weeks. 
We are built for more, that's the title, than adding garbage onto the heap. We are built for more than just bringing into the world more of the cast. We are built for planting flowers, for sowing seeds. We are built to offer the same love, the same joy, the same peace we've been given by Christ to others. The thing is, we're meant to do all of this building together. Not in isolation. We're meant to do it together. You were built. You were created for community. And you can't have genuine community. Just look at the word. You can't have community without what? Without unity. It's right there. Community is built on unity. If you do not have unity, you cannot have community. So Psalm 133 gives us some insights into this whole topic, into this theme. It's so relevant for us today. It was written by King David. Let me just give you a little background. It is called a song of ascent. And so what happened was as the people of God would gather together in the holy city of Jerusalem, they had 15 songs of ascent. And when they were entering into the inner courtyard of that temple, as the priests made that climb towards what was considered the symbolic presence of God, as they hit each step, they would sing a song. They'd hit a step, they'd sing the next song. This is one of those songs of ascent preparing the people's heart for the presence of God. And this psalm, very short, it answers a very important question for us, and that is, how can we experience spiritual unity in the midst of a community, not just our church community, but our community? How can we experience spiritual unity in the midst of a community full of spiritual depravity? Because that's what we see everywhere. First, we have to come into the family. You've got to join the right family. How can we experience spiritual unity in the midst of a community full of spiritual depravity? By coming into the family. Look at verse 1. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. He says, behold. David wants to get our attention. He's saying, don't you dare miss this. Don't overlook this. Don't minimize what you're about to sing and what you're about to say. It's like he's so excited. He wants to shout out some great news. He's saying, I've found something here, and it's so rare. It's so precious. And once you find it, you've got to shout about it because I found this rare blessing from God. You don't see it very often, but behold, here it is, how good and how pleasant it is when brothers, you can add sisters here too, it's an inclusive term, when brothers and sisters dwell in unity. Now this song is a plea for God's people, the church, to experience the real blessing, the gift that unity brings. Now there's a major assumption that goes all the way through the word of God. From start to finish, it's everywhere. It's that God's people are meant to do life together. Meant to do life together. Never was it even a thought that you could be part of God's family and just exist on the fringes. The devil loves to isolate God's people. He loves to faction us off and put us into places on our own because that's when things become dangerous. I've heard it put this way. Christianity is not per purely intellectual. It's not a head thing. It's not purely intellectual or even internal faith. It can only be lived in community. 
in order for our faith to thrive, in fact, in order for us to express the very faith that we've committed ourselves to, it requires that we are in community with one another. That's the way it's designed. That's the way it was made. That's what best reflects the reality of heaven. Now, the issue is this whole cancel culture phenomenon has made its way certainly into the church. Don't you feel it? I mean, it's, it's a crazy time. Just look around the room. You're, some of you are at home. But you just look around this place. It's like, what, what happened? <laughs> Where'd everybody go? And there's, of course, many good reasons why some are staying home. Medical issues, people that they're caring for, people who are of higher risk. And so we're just grateful for the technology. However, there's still this thing happening within Christianity, within the people of God. And we have to pay attention to it because there's this wave, this movement, this tide of our culture saying, you know what? The cancel culture society is also saying cancel church culture too. I was just having... Uh, a get-together with some friends the other day. There was a couple that was in town from L.A. They were directing a film, a documentary for Netflix, and, and they had a history in church, but their history in church was pretty painful to them. Now, they, I think, really well encapsulated and, and communicated what the broader culture thinks about the church holistically. They would actually look at the culture itself and say it's divisive, it's distracting, and it's dangerous. Now, Barna, the Christian research group, just came out with a study. And within those who claim to be followers of Christ, one in three, since COVID started back in March, one in three have just stopped attending altogether. Just gone. 33% of what was considered the American evangelical church, just gone. In just six months, just millions gone in terms of their commitment to community with the family of God. That's both online and in person. 50% of millennials have stopped attending altogether. So people that say they are part of the family are abandoning their family. And you can't be part of a family if there's no family that you're a part of. So you have to come into the family. Now let's think about a question. Why do you think dwelling in unity it was difficult for them even back then in this time what do you think dwelling in unity involves do you think it involves more than just a hello and goodbye on the weekend was it more than a smile or like in today's weird world like we're gonna do like an air fist bump deal you know 20 feet apart did it only involve a nuclear family, a husband and wife and kids? The Bible is consistent from front to back that the idea of God's people, that they are meant to do life on life, not life online. That, that although, again, I, I, I'm giving grace, of course, we're giving one another grace. There's lots of good reasons why maybe there's some separation within the people of God, but there's also a lot of people just using pretty lame excuses. There's both happening right now. And I think we can all agree that the ideal scenario and the way that God designed it to be is that we would experience life together, not replace it. Thank God for technology. It's better than nothing. But life online is not the same as life on life. So we desire to be a people together, a family together these extended families depended on each other. That's why unity for them, even in the first century, for us today, for all of human history, this is why it's so hard. Because when you really share life with people, what's that mean? 
That means it's messy. That means there's drama. That means there's human emotion and feeling and issue and relationship and conflict to work through. But those are the exact things that the Lord put in place so his people would grow up. If you don't work through the conflict, if you just run from the conflict, then you stay an infantile in your faith. You have to work through the conflict, and so the community is a blessing even when they bring you pain. Do you see this? This is what God wants to do with his people. He wants to bring us together. And these people did life together. Christianity was never meant to be a picture of self-sufficiency. It's not individualistic. It's not autonomous. God has always assumed that his people would live in real community together. Now, in this passage, this is literally what they're doing. They're traveling together, vacationing together, on their way to Jerusalem for a holiday. That's what the festivals were. Sometimes we make them these very stoic, quiet, like experiences that seem off-putting and that I wouldn't want to be a part of. Really, it was a big party, a huge barbecue. And whatever scent was going up from that altar in Jerusalem, it was a good one because they would eat after the sacrifices were given. So they're traveling together on their way to this place this temple that represented the very presence of God. And as they're going, of course, they're depending on one another. So before we can even talk about unity, we have to understand there are too many people today who don't really buy into the sense that we are meant to do life together to begin with. Now, remember the scene of Matthew 12. Let's just go to the life of Christ for a second. Jesus is speaking to the crowds of people in Matthew chapter 12. And per usual, the spiritual elite of his day called the Pharisees were questioning him. And the situation gets so intense in their questioning and in his teaching and in his challenge upon them that his own family shows up outside of the house, outside of the environment, and sends in a messenger to basically bring him out and save him from what he's saying. And do you remember what happens? They send in the messenger. The messenger goes to Jesus and says, hey, your mother and brother and sisters, they're outside. They want to talk to you. And do you remember what he said? Do you remember his re reply? In front of everybody, he said, well, who is my family? Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Who are my sisters? Is it not these, pointing to his disciples, those who do the will of God? Now, what he just did there, it's, it's incredibly powerful. It, it reprioritizes so much in our life and in our world. What he's saying is he is not minimizing his responsibility to his DNA family. He has a responsibility to his mother. He has a responsibility to his siblings. What he's doing is he is elevating our responsibility to our brothers and sisters in Christ. He says they're outside Who's my family? Those who do the will of God. He's not abandoning them, but he's saying that this family of faith better be pretty high on this priority list. This is where our time and responsibility ought to go. And all the more when your physical family is also part of the family of God through faith. So Jesus, he obeyed the will of the father. He was part of the family he, he obeyed the will of the Father. Those who, that, that's how he describes those who are part of the family of God, those who obey the will of the Father. He obeyed the will of the Father all the way to the cross, all the way to his death. 
He came to seek and save that which was lost. He jumped into the garbage heap so that we could be restored back into the garden. So that through faith in his death, you would know your sins are forgiven and you would be brought back into right community, right unity with the Father. So the question we have to ask right here, verse one, is have you come into the family of faith through Christ? Are you dependent upon him alone to remove the garbage from your life and fill it back up with the seeds of the gospel, to fill it up with life, to fill it up with the good news so that you would be a good news people, so that you could be part of that family of faith through Jesus. If you are in Christ, that means you must be committed to your spiritual family. Are you in community? There is no spiritual family without community. It doesn't exist. It's amazing how blind we can be, that we can think this is what our radical, individualized, consumeristic society teaches us over and over, that we can actually be a follower of the ways of Jesus and not actually be in community with the people of Jesus. <laughs> we can't do that. That doesn't, that doesn't even work. Again, the devil loves to get us isolated. The point is that we need each other. We need each other. We need to listen. We need to love, to encourage, to challenge. We need to be in community together. So how can we experience spiritual unity in the midst of a community full of spiritual depravity? By coming into the family. Secondly, by coming into the family with harmony, with the right posture. This is also part of verse one that's described here. Now think about this. David definitely would have known what a rare treasure genuine unity was. Why? Well, think about David's life. We often put these heroes really high on the pedestal. This guy's life was a mess. It was a train wreck in so many ways. Think about it with me for a moment. His life was mostly filled with division. He and his brothers were divided. Imagine if your father, you're one of the brothers, and a prophet comes to your home, somebody of prestige comes to your home, says, I want to see all your sons, and your father brings all the boys except for you. How do you feel? Do you feel part of the family? Do you feel unified with those other brothers in your household? How do you feel about your love for your father or his love of you? That's how his story really starts. He and his wives were divided. Remember that one time when he's king, fast forward a bunch of years, and he's king and he's just worshiping God in an unabandoned way. In front of all the people, he's like, I don't care what people think. I'm going to worship God with everything I've got. He goes into his palace. His wife is there. She's like, what are you doing? You're an embarrassment. Division, disunity. He basically says to her, I'm going to worship God the way that God's called me to worship him. And if you're not into that, I'm sorry. Well, disunity, we know about his history with women his failures in that regard in his life as well. He and King Saul were divided. Saul's son, Jonathan's his best friend. How would you like it if your very best friend in the world, if his dad wanted to send a spear through you? That was his reality. He and his children were divided. His own son tried to kill him. 
There were times when he and his men were divided. The very men that said, we will lay down our life for you. Well, what happened was in one particular scene, the wives and the children of some of his warriors were taken away. He's left with his men and they're so angry with him, his own men pick up stones to kill him. Now, this is not fairy tale. This is called historical narrative. This is reality. This is this man's history. Think about this man's life. When the 12 tribes that he led came together, always issues, always politics, always arguments, divisions. Just a few generations later, his grandchildren would see the very nation that he was giving his life to build up, torn apart, and now there's a split, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. His whole life was filled with disunity and division. Everywhere you look in David's life, there was disharmony. Do you ever feel that way? So for those few seasons where he experienced unity, he's like, man, my life, there's such a mess. There's such a mess relationally in every meaningful relationship. His dad, his brothers, his spouse, his children, his men, his nation, all of these places, disunity everywhere. So when he finally saw scenes of it, he's like, thank you, God. How, behold how beautiful it is just for this moment when your people dwell together in unity. It's rare. It's like an animal about to go extinct. Did you see it? Did you spot one? Man, because we can't find it anywhere. The church says we have it. We have it, do we? It's everywhere in his life. And I think we feel that. We understand that. That's why God's word is so beautiful. Our world is so full of disharmony. I never thought I'd be stressed out about whether my kids would actually be going back to school. Like I never, I never, 12 months ago, I didn't even think that would be a thought. I never thought, I never even considered the thought that we might be forced into a public school, homeschool reality. I didn't even know that would be a thing, like public school, homeschool. Like what is that? I, I didn't know what that was eight months ago, nine months ago. I don't like it. Maybe some of you love it. You're like, it's, it's fantastic. My, my children, I, man, man, there's been a lot of disunity a lot of opportunity for unity, a lot of opportunity for forgiveness and grace and mercy, but it's all over the place. It's all over our society. I never thought we'd be running around in masks. Like, I get it, I get it. We're wearing them fine, but I didn't think that would be our world last year when we're watching football and whatever else. I didn't think that. I, I didn't think it could get any worse politically. <laughs> I mean, I should have known better. We all should have known better. World history should have taught us better. But Ravi Zachariah said it so well. He, he's passed away. What a wonderful servant of the Lord. And he said this uh, in his living breath. He said, we have the right against the left and both sides are at odds. But the reason we are fighting a right versus left is because we've forgotten there's an up and a down. Again, the only solution to disharmony is Jesus Christ and his gospel. There's no other answer. There's no other balm. There's no other solve. There's no other way. There's no other truth. There's no other life. There's just one way. 
Now that makes us exclusive because we are saying we exclusively have the answer. And yet, in our exclusivity, we have the most inclusive message the world's ever known available to all. But the exclusivity says, no, no, there's one way back to harmony, human thriving, both with the father vertical and then horizontal left to right and everything in between. It's through this one God man. Paul said it this way, Ephesians chapter two, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing, putting to death the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. When you enter the room, when you come to the dinner table, do you bring peace with you? Do you bring peace? Even if you have to confront somebody, is the root of your heart to get to peace and harmony. I think some people, I think all of us at times, we just like to fight. If you really get honest with yourself, my daughter Leah, she has a good musical ear. All of my children, they, they sometimes get frustrated with my wife and I because we make them take piano lessons. It's just part of your education. I was forced to do it. I took it for 12 years. I hated it for the first 11, but but I was forced to do it, and I love music now. It's always been a huge part of my life. My wife and my kids, the reason why they're not here this morning is my wife's helping lead worship at one of our other locations today. But, but we, it's just a big part of who we are. And so my daughter, Leah, our oldest, she, since she was seven or eight, just can hear harmony. She just hears it. She can sing it. She, she, she gets it. She just has that gift. My son, Josiah, whenever she starts singing harmony, I think just to get under his skin, but see these types of people sometimes. He's just like, I can't stand that noise. You're singing the wrong notes. Actually, it's the right notes, but he's saying, you're singing the wrong notes because it's not the melody line. You're singing the wrong notes. He can't stand the harmony. And sometimes we're like that. It's like if there isn't somebody else to fight with, somebody else to blame, then people start to get uncomfortable. Why is that? Well, it's because of this. It's because instability has become the norm. And so stability for us is to create the norm, which is instability. So it's like we're people who desire stability, but the way we get what's normal or what feels normal is by bringing instability. It's by bringing disharmony because that becomes our harmony. We're so accustomed to it, it's like, man, if it's not happening around me, I better create some somewhere because this just doesn't feel right. So we have to fight against the flesh, the ways of the world, embrace a different way. Are you bringing peace? Are you bringing harmony to the family of God? Or do you bring disharmony? Do you think it was comfortable for Jesus to confront his family back in Matthew 12? <laughs> Do you think it was comfortable for Jesus to confront his disciples over and over and over again? But every confrontation was birthed out of a heart of love and for the purpose of peace. 
how can we experience spiritual unity in the midst of a community full of spiritual depravity? We have to come into the family through faith. We have to come with harmony. Finally, we have to come and be refreshed. Look at verse two. We're finally moving on in this short little psalm. It says, it is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. That verse has to be one of the strangest sentences in the whole Bible. Like maybe you're thinking like, how is a grimy old man with a dripping wet oily beard pleasant? (laughs) I'm not a beard guy. This is like the longest I even let it get. I hit 40, so too much gray. So I like to just get rid of it a lot of times or keep it short. But the idea to me of thinking that there's an old man with a a dripping wet beard isn't like a pleasant picture. I've never heard of a woman say, "You, you just take that three foot beard and you just soak it up with some oil. You just, so it's just dripping everywhere. Like it's just not, a good picture. It's kind of weird. So what's going on here? If you would allow me, let me just teach the word of God for a moment because the context matters so much. There's so much symbolism happening here. So let me explain to you what this picture is all about. This is a picture that goes back to Exodus 29. If you like to take notes, you could check it out later. When Aaron, the high priest, is consecrated as the high priest. The oil being poured on his head was was poured over him when he was all dressed up in his priestly garments, and it's steeped in meaning and significance. It meant, first, it meant a few things. First, it meant that he was appointed by God to do the work of God. Now, all the prophets, kings, and priests were anointed with oil to show that they were set apart to do the work of God. That's what it meant. That, that the person, as they were as the oil was poured on them, they were set then apart to accomplish a very specific purpose for the Lord. That's why Jesus is called the Christ. What is the Christ? It means the anointed one set apart. That's why in Mark 14, we see a woman pour out an extremely expensive bottle of perfume and anoint Jesus just prior to his death. He was set apart to do the work of God and set apart, really, what was the work of God in his life? If you really want to mess with, you know, prosperity gospel theology, what was the purpose of his life? To die. He was set apart to die Then so his name would be lifted to become the highest name of all, overall, though though through his name, salvation came. So he set apart to bring salvation to the world, to make salvation possible. He was set apart for death, but through his death, we have life and unity. So our unity sets us apart to do God's work. Our unity is like the oil being poured on our head. Displaying our unity says we've been set apart from the rest of the world that lives this way to live this way to do God's work. Secondly, the oil was special because it was a mixture of myrrh and cinnamon and calamus and cassia and olive oil. And I love this because it was strong ingredients coming together, catch the symbolism, coming together to form one unified oil used by God. In other words, God pulls us together, different spices, different opinions, different ages, different backgrounds and blends, and he brings us together to produce this oil to accomplish his good purposes. We're not supposed to be the same. We're supposed to be one oil in a perfect mixture to do God's work, but it's this beautiful blend 
that is brought together. And here's the most important thing. Oil was a common picture of God's presence and the Holy Spirit within the Old Testament. The picture of Aaron being drenched in oil is a picture of God's Holy Spirit being poured out over his people. Now, the high priest would hold on his breastplate 12 stones representing the entire nation, the 12 tribes of Israel. And as that oil is drenched, it covers over all of those stones representing the people of God. So the point is that oil would cover over these stones, meaning the Holy Spirit covers God's people. 1 Peter chapter 2, maybe you've heard the verse, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that you may, here's the purpose, proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So we have been drenched in this Holy Spirit of God and we've been set apart to do his work. The point is, you didn't just get a few drops you got covered in his grace. You are covered in his spirit. His spirit is all over you through faith. It's there. It's already present. You right now, if you step into the spirit, are already full of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The only reason why those things aren't present is if you let them not be present. Because you've already been drenched in the presence of God's Spirit. It's already upon you. It's so easy to let our agendas and our preferences and our schedules be that oil that drenches us, to be controlled by all those other forces. But the only one who truly covers our lives ought to be the Holy Spirit, that we would not quench him. Get the word picture. It's still the same idea, quenching, refreshment, covering. He's in control. We're anointed to do his work. Unity comes through him alone. Look at verse 3. It's like the dew. When, when we live this out, it's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Now, Mount Hermon is really a group of three peaks that separates Lebanon, Syria, and Israel. And they're all about the same height, about 10,000 feet above sea level. They're covered in snow, typically year-round. And every morning, those slopes are covered in heavy dew, and it collects and runs down the slopes and gathers into the Jordan River. Without Mount Hermon, there is no harvest in much of Israel. The point is that Israel is dry, arid, and parched. And if we're not for that mountain, that dew, that river, it's a desert. So what's he saying here? What's the point? It's a picture of life. It's a picture of refreshment. It's a picture of God's blessing. The point is, when we are unified, we bring spiritual refreshment and vitality and life to the world. You see the picture, how beautiful it is. We miss this stuff sometimes when we don't really dive into the beauty of God's word. When we are unified, we bring refreshment to the world. We bring vitality and life into a desert. We bring a garden back into the garbage. John 17, 20. Jesus, as he was praying for his disciples and really his followers, he also prayed for the church. And you've heard this 
prayer. Maybe if you've been around the Bible for some time, it's called the high priestly prayer of Christ just prior to his crucifixion. He says, I do not ask for these only. I'm not just praying for my disciples who are physically here with me. He says, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. We are the recipients of the gospel through their word. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Church family, if we are not one, the world will not see that Jesus was sent by the Father. If we are not one, we will not experience the refreshment that the Holy Spirit brings. If we are not one, we will not be effective in carrying the work of God out in this world. Oneness assumes genuine community, and you can't have community without the foundation of unity. It requires commitment. It requires sacrifice, and yes, it will be painful. It requires us to say to each other, we need each other. We need each other. I need you and I need you. We need each other. In fact, turn to somebody around you today. Just say, I need you. I need you. Just turn to them and say it out loud. I need you. And then say back to them, we need each other. We need each other. Let's all say it together. We need each other. We need each other. We need each other. We so desperately need each other right now. There's stuff we're going through. How are you going to get through it? You're just going to hunker down by yourself. You're going to get picked off. The wolves will come and get you. There's safety in the flock of God. The flock of God is under the care of its Savior, Jesus Christ. There's strength in the family of God. There's peace in the family of God. There's harmony in the family of God. And when we do this, how can we experience spiritual unity? In the midst of community full of spiritual depravity, we join the family, we bring harmony, we bring refreshment, we choose life together. That's so good. And as we do that, we will overcome all the things that we see in this world. What's the greatest, as I close, what's the greatest hinder to this? What's the greatest hinder to you What's the hurdle that keeps you stepping deeper into unity and community with the family of God? It's fear. It's fear. But perfect love, it says in Scripture, casts out fear. We are no longer slaves to fear. We've been given life. So we press in on this, overcome our fears, and we say, Lord, not only is this for your glory, not only is this for our good, but this is for the world, for your name, for your renown. Father, give us your grace. Give us courage. Father, give us peace. Father, give us unity. Father, give us harmony. Give us all the things that you've already purchased for us in your blood on the cross. 
Help us not only to think about such beautiful things, but to live them and experience them and spread them and share them. And Father, I pray that if there be any here that need to come into your family, that today they would choose Christ. That they would lay down their life and say, yeah, my ways just birth disunity everywhere. Your way is the only life I can have. And Father, for all of us broken, but mended together in the beautiful fabric of your family, every type of flavor, every type, under your glorious grace, we say we, ref we, we give up our fear and we choose community. We choose the strength of your family so that we might communicate and demonstrate and proclaim your good news. In Jesus' name we pray these things. And all of us together said, amen. Let's stand and respond together. Let's sing. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head over to woodsidebible.org slash connect to introduce yourself to us today.